so jazzed after the keynote. <laughs> like it fed perfectly into what I was doing here and I'm still, I'm still just, that's all running through my head and I went to the after session and we had a great after session with him talking about how messy the world is and, and how schools are too linear and it's just, ah, oh, it's all over the place. So yeah, so this is me, get used to it. All right, so my name's Jeff Udick. I teach at the International School Bangkok in Bangkok, Thailand, where at 4.30 today, I'm flying back to Seattle. I'll get three hours of sleep, be on a plane. I land Sunday night at 11 o'clock and start work 7 a.m. on Monday morning. So yeah, so I'll be a little bit tired first day of work, but that's the way it goes. Uh, so what we're gonna talk about today is again, really feeds off the keynote today of how do we move our schools and our students from being consumers of knowledge to producers of knowledge. And so we're going to kind of look at three different things. First, I'm going to start off by like just taking a history because I'd like to start with where our kids are today and, and just reminding ourselves who are the kids in our schools. We'll then move into uh, some of the theory behind what I, my personal theory on what's happening on the web. Uh, and then in, at the end, we'll, we'll look at some examples of what does a school look like when a school has made that shift from students being consumers to students being producers of knowledge, all right? All of my handouts for this session can be found here on the wiki. If you go to jeffudick.com and click on services and click on handouts, that will take you to uh, my wiki where you'll see 09 or 0809 conferences. You'll see all the handouts for all the conferences I've done there, including this one is the last one for the year. So it's at the very bottom and you can click there. And I added stuff yesterday based on the feedback I got from doing this yesterday. So it's great. And there's a place down there you can leave a comment if there's any resource that I have forgotten to link or there's something you want there, write me a little note and uh, I'll link that in as well. I've also set up a back channel chat because you see there's one thing I understand. How many of you in here right now are checking your email? Yes. How many in here right now are updating Facebook? Nobody. One. One. Thank you. Two people updating their Facebook. How many people in here right now are on Twitter? Oh my gosh. Look at all of these. See this is the thing. You have this powerful tool in your hand and if I don't engage you with that tool you're going to be off task. And so here's a way if you've never used a back channel chat before Here's an opportunity for you. I give you permission to be completely off task, put earplugs in your ear, and go learn something somewhere else. If you go here, this is actually a chat room. So tinyurl.com slash ju for Jeff Udick, BLC09. And it will actually bring you, this is the worst setup for me, by the way. I'm going to be up and off this thing all day. I'll go back. But that'll bring you here. And yesterday's chat is above this, if you want to scroll up with it, yes, other people said. But you'll have an opportunity to actually have a conversation with other people in this room that you might not be sitting next to. Okay? Not only that, I'm sure at some point somebody will probably Twitter out that URL and you could have people from outside the world talking with you around the ideas that we're going to be discussing here today in that chat room. Now, for me as a teacher, which kind of the role, let's pretend that for a second in the classroom, very powerful. Because yesterday I went back and I went through this chat and really reflected on what did people take away from my presentation and how do I make my presentation even better. I do that also in the school with my kids. I've used this in middle school and in high school where we set up a chat room and kids have computers and kids can be chatting in the background and they're able to process information as it's being delivered to them. If you don't type something for a while, this happens. Uh, but you just have to click the stay connected and it'll come back. Uh, and usually what I do if I'm doing this with kids, 
is I'll also have two or three monitors in the room because you don't, I'm not going to be monitoring it because you're adults and you're going to get off task anyways and it doesn't matter because you're still going to check your email even though I told you to do this. But in the classroom, I'll have two or three monitors. Those kids those days will become the monitors of the chat and they will help to make sure that the chat stays focused because they know I'm going to look at it afterwards. It's going to be part of my reflection. It's going to be part of our learning. You can copy and paste this and the kids can use it as their collective notes, right? Collaborative note taking here in real time during information. But when you have three kids, I really like to use three kids because it gives me the opportunity that if something comes up in our discussion, I can look at one of the moderators and say, you know, that's a great idea. Can you go find a link that will help explain that better and put the URL in the chat? And I hope you do that. You know, if, if I show a video and you want to throw the link to the YouTube video in the chat for other people, that's what this is for. Or that's great. Can you go find a picture that represents whatever we're talking about? And so one of the moderators then can go out to the World Wide Web and grab a picture and throw that into the chat. And so it allows you to really rely on the students to create the information for you. Do I have it up on the screen? Usually not. It depends on the class. Some classes I will. Some classes I won't. I will when I start. <laughs> I won't after I've done it a couple times with the kids and they get a hold of it. Yep, I'll put that address back up. Here's the address. Okay. All right. And you can go there after this is over too. After this session's over, you can go back there and you'll be able to read the chat message. Okay, so from there, I like, oh no, tinyurl.com slash ju, Jeff Udick, BLC, 09. All right, so let's start with reminding ourselves who our students are today. Because I think it's so easy to forget who these kids are. It's so easy to forget the history that they don't have. So today's graduating seniors were born either in either 89 or 90. Right? Which means when they were born, the World Wide Web was already being created. Computers as we know it are 15 years old. They'll never know a time without computers. When you show them the T that has a typewriter on the flashcard in kindergarten, they're not going to recognize it. Right? They've never seen one. They've never had to use one. Right? By 1996, when they're six, Palm Pilots are out. Mobile computing, the beginning of mobile computing is created when kids are six. You wonder why they take to cell phones. It's all they've ever known. They've always been able to hold devices in their hands. Right? By 97, 98, chat messaging takes off. Right? 1996, Tim's Burner Lee creates the really first HTML comes out. We have the first web browser. And next thing we know, we kind of have the World Wide Web as we know today's in its you know, infancy stage of being created. And the kids go out and they do this to us. They create a whole new language that we don't even appreciate to communicate globally. We could never do this, right? Because if we were to do this in our day, we'd have to form the committee. We'd have to come up with some standards. We would have to decide, like they did it on the fly. They did it as it was being created. As chat rooms came out, as MSN messaging came out, they create, and they're constantly creating it. Right? Parent looking over shoulder, right? They've got they constantly being revolutionized. They've only known this. They're still in elementary school. Seniors today are still in elementary school when this is created. By 1999, the iPod comes out. 
they will never know music in anything but MP3 form. Right? By 2001, they're entering middle school, Wikipedia is created. They will never remember doing research before middle school without Wikipedia. I love remembering this. These are the kids that are in our schools today. They don't remember a time when we sat at home with the 26 volumes on the bottom shelf. They never have. They never will. Right? By the time this comes around, text messaging, SMS text messaging takes off, there are 3.3 billion cell phones in the world. Right? Six billion people on the planet. There's over half of the world's population has a cell phone. I have literally seen people in Saudi Arabia on a camel in the middle of a desert with a cell phone calling the tent in the middle of the desert. This is a technology that leapfrogged other technologies. Saudi Arabia, when I was there for three years, I lived in Saudi Arabia for three years, they have a couple different technologies. This is one, people never had a landline. They went from having no form of communication to having cell phones. A lot of Africa's doing the same thing. They went from riding camels to flying jet planes. They skipped, there's no railroads in Saudi Arabia. They skipped that whole generation and evolution of travel. This is what the cell phone is doing to us. Not only that, there are 2.8 trillion text messages sent every year. It's a multi-trillion dollar industry, which is about 2.8 billion text messages sent every day, or about 92,000 text messages sent every single second of every day for an entire year. This is how they communicate. That's psychotic. And they've been doing it since they started high school. Right? By 2003, Skype's invented. They'll never have a $300 long distance bill. <laughs> right? They will always be able to get information for free, whether it's NPR podcasts or podcasts from your school. Right? Podcasting takes off in 2004, and by 2005, the incredible thing happens, and this thing's, this thing's created, right? YouTube. Right? 3.5 billion searches done on YouTube every month. Number two only to Google itself. More than Yahoo, more than MSN, more than Bing, more than anything else, you have Google and YouTube. We are searching for more and more content via video every day. So here's my question to you. If this is where kids are going to look for information, how many of your schools are posting information there for your kids to find? How many of you have gone there and, be careful where you do this at, searched for your school to see what kids are posting about your school. If you don't control the information out there, they'll control it for you. I did this with a bunch of administrators, and one administrator, I gave them time to go to youtube.com, search, you know, Central Valley High School, high school I graduated from, and one administrator said, all as we do is dance. You know, that's all his school. He searched for his school, and they were all these dance videos that some parent had uploaded. His school's known as a dance school on YouTube, right? Another administrator says, well, if you dance, all we do is have concerts. And they had every musical concert that a parent had posted was what was on YouTube. They're a musical school. You know, if that's where people are looking for information, are we producing information there that represents the quality of education happening at our school? Something to think about. By 2006, they're known as the MySpace generation. 
Of course, Facebook follows after. They've been social, right? This is when they're entering high school. And of course, we as educators believe we are, you know, preparing them for the future ahead. The problem is, is they're telling us that we're not, right? This is a study of 320,000 public school children where they say the digital connect is live and well. Kids tell us they power down when they come to school. And we wonder why. The computer was 15 years old when they were born, right? This is all they've ever known. I was teaching a seventh grade class, a technology class, and we were studying the history of computers. And when kids found out that computers were, came out, personal computers came out in 1976, and the internet wasn't as we know it today until 1996, I had a girl raise her hand and said, what did you do? <laughs> you know, what, what did you do for 20 years? Like, they just can't fathom that the things are separate. Right, they, they, they have no concept of a computer without an internet connection. It just does, it's not in, they, they don't know. And they shouldn't know, they weren't born then, right? And that leads us to this, which is you really should be scared about, right? How many of you know that there are ringtones that kids have on their phone that you can't hear? All right, we're gonna listen. Are you ready? Open your ears up. See if you can listen to this. Ready? Raise your hand if you can hear this. Oh, very good, you're not tone deaf. Everyone should be able to hear that one, good. Okay, if you can't, might need to go, you know, make an appointment. All right, next one, listen. Raise your hand. Okay, good. That should be 60 years and older. Right? Next one, or sorry, 60 years and younger. Sorry, 60 years and younger. Next one. Okay. 50 years and younger. Ready, next. Thirty-nine years and younger. Ready? Turn this one up. Okay, I can't hear that one either. So, but I've had people in I've had people in sessions that can hear that one, so I know it does play the sound. <laughs> Twenty-four years and younger should be able to hear that. Now, the problem is I had to stop downloading them at that point. Because down here it gets 16 years of age and younger. I had, couldn't even tell I was downloading a sound file. <laughs> right? I, I couldn't download anymore. But they have these. And how I found this out is I had an 11th grade kid come into my room and he goes, Hey, Mr. You, can you hear this? And I went, Hear what? He's like, Perfect, excellent, right? And walks away. <laughs> whoa, 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 whoa. What just happened? Right? Because we tell them that they can't have. Their, their cell phones in the classroom. Yet, I would love to see a graph of how many times kids have to go to the bathroom in the last, like, five years, you know? Because that thing's going off in their pocket. They run to the bathroom and they're checking text messages. And this is the problem, is the future is now. We need to get over the fact that this change is coming. I'm sorry, the change is here, right? I publicly on my blog about a year ago, gave up the term 21st century. 21st century literacy, 21st century learning. We're nine years into the 21st century, people. Almost 10. It's today's literacy. Today's learning. When are we going to start talking about today's education? Not 21st century. We're in it. Whether we want to be or not, we're in it. Okay. And we know that things are shifting around us, right? I mean, this is where all this is going. The oldest newspaper in all of America 
has gone completely online, cannot afford to print. You know, the largest newspaper company in all of the US has laid off 4,500 people and has only one person, the New York Times only has one person covering news coming from Hollywood. There's one reporter left at the Los Angeles Times that covers Hollywood. Why? Where are people getting their information? Twitter, blogs, right? They can't compete. My hometown, we lost our newspaper. Craigslist put this out of business. If you're from Seattle or somewhere that's totally into Craigslist, nobody's buying ads anymore. Buy and sell everything on Craigslist in Seattle. Right? It's gotten so bad, there's a blog that just follows the deaths of newspapers. Right? So here's the, the Tucson uh, citizen. Right? Gone. Here's rest in peace, a list of all the newspapers that have gone out so far. Those that are headed there. Right? Information's changing. Print literacy is changing. Right? How about this? At one time, the most bought magazine in all of the United States got sold for less than a dollar. Because nobody needed a TV guide anymore. Not when you can get the, what's on every station on your television. Or on your computer. Or on your phone. Right? And we're not even going to talk about what this is going to do to textbooks. Right? Because the newest version of this now allows you to uh, upload native PDF files. Which means you just need one kid to break the binding on a book, take it in, scan it, turn it into a PDF, put it on BitTorrent, and give it away for free. Amazon, whether they did it on purpose or not, has just backed textbook companies into a corner. Right? They're saying either you're going to make an ebook format, or kids, especially in university where they cost 120 bucks and you get $20 back when you put it back, right? Remember that? Right? All of a sudden, kids are just going to say, forget that, I'll download it and keep it with me for free. And I've talked to high school students and they're like, oh, we've been doing that for 10 years. <laughs> you know? I was like, oh, sorry, I thought it was something new. <laughs> oh, we've been doing that, they said. Okay? And here's the big problem it's not that we have an audience problem, people still want the news. We don't have an audience problem. What we have is a consumer problem. No longer are we willing to consume information in the old way. There's a new way to consume information, and we expect to be able to consume information now. We, be able, we like to consume information where we can actually write back to the author, where we can comment with other people and create a dialogue on that news article. If you go to the New York Times, .com, nytimes.com, almost every article now is a blog post because you can comment on the bottom of it because that's what people want. That's how we expect. So the disconnect, there's a disconnect here. There's a growing disconnect between the audience and what, how they expect to consume information. I want you to turn to somebody close to you and talk about this question. Is there a similar disconnect in our schools? Just a few minutes, turn and talk. Somebody want to throw out what they're thinking? Real quick, I'll take a couple. I'll take two. Two people. Who wants to throw out what they're thinking? Ideas that they have rolling around about this. One. Well, the, the, the problem for us is, uh, you know, it's not the technology. That's there. It's the culture. So it's, it's the culture and training, teach, you know, old-style teachers going, you know, look, I'm in the front of the room, so that's how it is, and you'll have to listen to what I tell you and what I teach you. 
as opposed to putting the role of the education into the, the, the power of education in the hands of the students. Beautiful. I'll take one more. Anybody else want to share something? Nobody else? Yes. Oh, that's breaking the rules. Teachers should not have to change. Yeah, this is what I say. We don't have an audience problem. We have an engagement problem, right? We're having a hard time engaging the kids. Now, you take this conference, for example. How different would this conference be if you were not able to engage in information via Wi-Fi? This, this conference wouldn't be meaningless, but it'd be, there'd be less meaning to this conference. There'd be less things you could do. If I didn't set up a back channel chat, that allowed you to engage in a conversation that was happening in real time, right? This might be less meaningful to you. Not meaning less, but less meaningful than if you're engaged in that back channel conversation, right? If you're able to Twitter this out, if you're able to, to take notes, if you're able to look something up when I'm talking, right? You have that engagement power, you know? So what I've been thinking about is how do we move this? Where, do, where does this come from? Where are we going? So we all know this constructivism theory, right? This is where we were all born and raised on this, which basically says that individuals construct new knowledge from their experiences, right? That learning has to be individualized. This is what we all went through to school. This is what we understand. And we all truly believe this, and I truly believe this. And then in 2000, uh, 2004, George Siemens comes out with the connectivism theory, which adds on to that, looking at how the network is changing the way we learn. And what he is saying is that our learning occurs in these shifted environments, right? This is back to the keynote today, that the links are everywhere. It's constantly changing. New things are coming. There's tags. There's links. It's just, it's chaos. And how do we find that stream? And more and more, our learning is taking place in this connected environment, okay? At the same time, in 2001, based on brain research, we go back and we look at higher order thinking skills and we realize that learning is an active process. You have to be actively involved, actively engaged in the learning process. So they went back to Bloom's taxonomy and they turned them all into verbs, right? It's an action. You have to create, you have to apply, you have to analyze information, right? So learning is an action, not a process. So we come up with this. And if you don't believe this, that's all right. This is me, right? I came up with this, and here's what I say. This is my Jeff Udick's constructive connective mashup theory, right? So individuals construct new knowledge from their experiences. Many of these experiences occur within networked environments where information is chaotic, connected, and complex. Within these environments, the learner must be able to actively create new knowledge from what is currently known. That is my belief that I work from. I'm taking what I was taught, what's come out, what we know has changed, and I'm trying to wrap my head around it. Okay? Man, I am fired up, man. I could go for hours. <laughs> Woo! All right. So, with that, we also come up with this. This is really cool. This is a study out of the UK where they were looking at, is, the inter is internet use good or bad for the brain? So this is brain activity. So this is brain activity of a web newcomer, somebody that's brand new to the internet, and they're reading a book, okay? So they haven't spent a lot of time on the web reading a book. This is somebody now, this is areas of brain activity of somebody reading a book, but is an expert or has experienced 
web user. So they've experienced, they're an experienced web user, but right at this point, they're reading a book. Okay? This is somebody who is a web user, stimulates much more activity in the same brain. So this is somebody actively involved of reading, researching, finding, linking information on the internet. Okay? Now, somebody in my session yesterday said, well, what is that brain activity? It could be anything. So I went back and read the article because I needed to know. And they said that these particular areas of the brain deal with memory, deal with reading, deal with analyzing. Those areas of the brains, they've spotlighted that. Here's the scariest part of this study. It was done on people between the ages of 55 and 76. If that is the brain waves of somebody that did not grow up with this technology, what is it going to look like with somebody born in 1990 when computers were 15 years old, who were six when the internet as we know it today was created? Yes? Yes, it's on the wiki, and it says the uh, internet used uh, good for the brain. There's a link there, take you directly to the article from BBC. Okay? Man, that right there is so cool. I can't imagine what's firing in these kids, right? They're ADHD. That 55-year-old's ADHD, <laughs> right? So today's model of literacy development. Here's what kind of came out of a report for the National Council of Teacher Education, or of uh, uh, English, Teachers of English, okay? So we focus a lot in schools on print literacy, right? We read books. The print literacy is hugely covered in schools. Some schools focus on digital literacy. We're getting there. Anybody here have specific digital literacy curriculum outcomes in their district? Okay. How about network literacy? Okay. And this is kind of where we're at with schools, right? We, do, we focus a ton down here. And, you know, there's some schools that are starting to move up here. And network literacy, how do you read a web page? How do you read a web page that's full of links? Do you read until you come to a link, click, and then jump to the next web page? Or do you read, click, and open in a new window, finish reading this passage, and then go and see where the links went? And how do you teach kids to decide how do you read this way and how do you read when you're jumping? Those are new skills. Those are new literacy skills we need to be teaching. Okay? So what I said is tomorrow's literacy needs to look like this. Where digital literacy is in the middle, I believe print literacy is part of digital literacy. There's going to be something digital that we can do with that. Whether it's understanding pictures, whether it's understanding something. There's audio, there's networked, there's linked, there's sharing, there's audience, understanding authentication, commenting, videos, bookmarking. And then I was in a session yesterday and I went, no, 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 it's not digital literacy. You see, it's just literacy. This is the literacy of today. Is there somewhere in your curriculum where you talk about teaching commenting, teaching authenticating information, teaching how to bookmark, how to read a link, how to share information? This is the literacy of today. And here's the big problem, that we live in this just amazing time. Louis C.K. I'll tell you. We have only a stand next to 
that you show this to your staff, especially if you're in IT support, because you'll never have a teacher say, well, this web page takes forever to load. Just give it a second, like it's great. We showed it to our staff and it's changed the whole culture on the way people just look at the internet. 
right? Or the phone, like it's just become part of the culture. And being internationally, we fly a lot. Nobody ever complains on a plane anymore, right? We just all laugh at each other. I'm still waiting for somebody on a plane to go, wow, this is amazing, you know, just screaming out. That clip is actually on the wiki. You can find it on YouTube. It's called uh, Everything's Amazing and Nobody's Happy. But it's on the wiki. I put, I put the YouTube there in the wiki so you can find it as well in the handouts, right? Uh, Louis, Louis C.K., Louis C.K., and Elizabeth Davis, who's a local here, actually dated him in high school. We found that out the other day. So anyways, there's a connection back to the conference, actually. It's pretty cool. So let's talk a little bit about creating, right? High-order thinking skills. Let's talk about the top. What does this look like in schools that have made that transition from consumers to producers, to kids producing knowledge? So let's talk about a couple ways that creating can happen. Well, you can change or improve. And I think this is the real question we need to be asking about Wikipedia. It's not whether or not we should use the information. It should be in our classrooms. Can we change or improve the information that's there? Can we add value to it? Are we going to Wikipedia entries, reading them with our kids and asking our kids, what do you think about that? What's missing with that? Can we add something to that that might help define it better? That might help somebody else understand it better? With that goes Wikibooks, right? Has anybody here used Wikibooks in the classroom? So this is like Wikipedia, only these are the next textbooks being created by kids and professors I'm going to see if I can find it real quick. It'll probably be better if I just go wiki books. <clears throat> right? So I'm going to click on English. I'm going to scroll down a little bit, and you're going to find here that there's books in all kinds of subjects. Not every subject's there yet, so you could create it from scratch. But let's just take, you know, let's take biology. So let's say you're studying biology. We're going to come down, and let's say we're, uh, we're studying the botany unit, right? So I can come down, and we're going to study chapter three called plant tissues. And you know what? There's two paragraphs. Now, somebody has taken the time to write two paragraphs that deal with this. I don't know about you, but my textbook back in high school had more than two paragraphs on plant tissue. Could your kids go here and add information? Is this information correct? That's where I would start. That'd be my first question to the class. Is this information correct? How do you know it's correct? And I'm hoping they get to the answer. I'm going to lead them to the answer. Well, I don't know because there are no hyperlinks anywhere here. There's no references. That's the first thing we're going to do. First thing we're going to do is we're going to take 15 minutes and see if you can go find a website that can authenticate this information. And, oh, you're my EAL student and you don't read very well or something. Can you go find a picture that will help represent plant tissue? Differentiate in the classroom, right? Okay? Can you do that? Your kids could be creating the next textbook that every other kid could use. I've yet to have a teacher use it. Someday I'm going to get an email that says, I started using it. I'm waiting for it. Okay? Please do. I would love it. Okay? How about compose or create information? Creating YouTube videos. Anybody here creating YouTube videos with your kids? Excellent. YouTube is an excellent resource because it comes with a built-in rubric called a rating system, five stars, four stars, three stars, right? My kids get a three-star movie. They come back to me and say, Mr. You, can I make another one? I know I could get four stars, right? They want to make another one. I know. YouTube comes with an audience. Our kids are there. They understand it. The engagement level completely goes through the roof. My wife is a counselor, and she told her fourth graders they were making a friendship video 
as part of the counseling program. And she told her kids, we're going to make a video that's going to go on YouTube. And they, <gasps> fourth graders knew that this was something very important. And it comes with built-in parameters. It has to be under 100 megabytes in under 10 minutes. You don't have to say that as a teacher. Kids know that. It has to fit within these parameters to be uploaded on YouTube. So here's a video that was created in a, uh, I believe, biology class where they were studying the human body. This is a class where they do a lot of different experiments. And this time, the teacher, has, the teacher did not know how to make a video. Didn't know, checked out cameras from the library. I went in and said, You're gonna do, let's do a video. And she said, sure, I'll try that. She goes, what do I need to know? I said, nothing. Hand the videos to the kids. Tell them to follow the exact same procedure they would if they were going to write it out like you would another experiment. You know, what is your research question? What is your hypothesis? What is your equipment? They're going to follow the same thing, only they're going to make that into a movie. Is this cool or what? Right? These are kids doing the exact same, re this exact same experiment they would have done on paper, only they created a video. They came in after school. They went over to each other's houses. They figured out how to make a video using Movie Maker on their own. And then they brought that into class and uploaded it to the school's YouTube channel. If you go and you search Shanghai American School on YouTube, you'll find the SAS School channel that has over 150 videos created by kids. Screencasts of how to make a pie chart in Excel 08, which is a thing we do in middle school. Things like this. We have kids making music videos and we're sharing them with the world because we also know that that's where kids are going to go to find out about Shanghai American School and we want them to know the kind of work that's done at our school. We're protecting our school's profile on the internet by creating content out there. You don't have to have YouTube unblocked in your school to do this. You can upload it at home. Kids are going to be searching it at home. You don't have to have YouTube unblocked at school to do something like that. How about combine or mash up? Can we take different information, bring it together, and create something new? This is made by a 12th grader about four years ago. Right? So here's a 12th grader who has an English paper he has to write, and the teacher made the mistake saying, you can write the paper however you want. So he took three of his friends, went into World of Warcraft, <laughs> and wrote his paper. I find this on YouTube, so I emailed the kid and said, hey, do you mind if I share this with teachers around the world? He, he writes back, he says, sure, yeah, go, it was a fun project, you know, I can't believe I have over 5,000 people that have watched that stupid thing. You know, just nothing to him. So he seemed like a nice kid, so I wrote him back and said, well, you know, what was the experiment? So he tells me the story, and he's like, and the best part is I got 210 out of 200 points. <laughs> Blew the teacher away. <laughs> I was like, that's fantastic, right? How about hypothesize or predict trends? Can we create data? Can we look at the future? What does internet use look like? What is text messaging going to look like? What are the trends that are happening to us? Okay. What are the big questions that you're asking? You know, the art of possibility. It's been interesting because that's been rolling around in my head, right? I hear somebody say, yeah, you know, the spiral downwards. Yeah, but Facebook is blocked at our school. Yeah, but YouTube is blocked at our school. Yeah, but we can't. Yeah, but we can't. Yeah, but we can't. Well, then get around it. Figure out something. Find a way. You don't have to have YouTube unblocked at your school to be using it with kids, to be uploading students. You just need parent permission. Okay? Think. There's ways to get around this stuff. All right? So as we head into the last section, I want to pause for a second and just define this Web 2.0 term. Who can define Web 2.0? What does it mean to you? Anybody? It's, it's, it's one of those terms that we use it all the time, but we have a hard time kind of defining it. What does Web 2.0 mean? Whatever Web 1.0 is, but now you interact and collaborate. Okay, good. 
Excellent. Same thing. Okay. Perfect. So I added this slide the other day because I was talking to my mother-in-law who has a cell phone but only knows how to receive calls on it, doesn't even know how to dial calls on it, right? Like, and, and she's like, well, what do you do? And so I said, well, I talk a lot about Web 2.0 stuff. And of course, she has no idea what Web 2.0 is. And I was like, okay, so now I have to define this to somebody who doesn't even, use, doesn't even have an email address. Like, we're talking, you know, my mother-in-law. So I said, okay. I said, so here it is. I said, you get the newspaper every day. You pick up the newspaper and you read a newspaper article. And you finish reading the newspaper article and you go, hmm, that was interesting. And you put it down. You have no way to respond to the writer. You have no way to be thinking about what other people that read that exact same article are thinking. Sure, we do have ways. It's called the local coffee shop, right? You can go down and you might accidentally sit next to somebody that accidentally read the same article as you did and you can have a conversation around that. Okay? And I said, what Web 2.0 is, is what if you could take that newspaper and you really liked something that that author said and you could actually respond to them? Or what if you were all of a sudden connected to everybody else that read that article and you could comment with them on that same article. What if you could actually see what other people had to say about that article from anywhere around the world? That's what Web 2.0 is. It's this ability to participate, this ability to add back, to become involved with the information. Right? Web, web 1.0 is we, it just came at us like a newspaper. We couldn't do much with it. We went, we found it, we read it, hmm, that's it. Web 2.0 now, we're creating it, we're responding to it, we're commenting on it. We're remixing it. We have access to that information now. Okay? That's mine. That's how I define it. Right? So, and what it comes down to is a lot what uh, our keynote today was about was the power of the link. Right? It's this messiness that is links everywhere and tags and bookmarks and videos and pictures and text and it's coming at us at an incredible rate all because of the hyperlink. Have you ever tried to find a web page without a link on it? Because Google can't find it. Google finds pages through links, right? If you've got a web page without a link on it, it's pretty tough to find on the web. <laughs> we rely really heavily on this link process. Okay? So here's the power, here's my story of the power of a link. Some of you might have seen this. This is a, a video, Web 2.0, the machine is using us. It's on YouTube. Uh, and it was produced by a university professor. And he uploaded this on January 31st, 2007. And it talks about how the web is changing and how, the, how we are teaching the machine through this web 2.0 environment by tagging things and bookmarking things. And we're starting to teach the machine how we want it to, to be used. And you can see down here at the bottom, there's, this has been viewed over 7 million times. This video has been viewed over 7 million times. But here's the, here's the real story. The real story is this little yellow bar, and you probably can't read it in the back. This little yellow bar says, this is a video response to Web 2.0. So he links it to this video, which was created by me <laughs> on March 8th of 2006. Now, this was my first attempt ever at a digital story. Right? So I went to Wikipedia, I grabbed Web 2.0, whatever was in web, the Web 2.0 article in Wikipedia at the time, copy and pasted that into a Word document, practiced it a couple times, grabbed a microphone, figured out real quick how to record my voice, recorded my voice, went to the internet, found some pictures that kind of matched up with it, uploaded it to YouTube. I mean, at this point, YouTube's only about six months old. I mispronounce people's names, mispronounce words. <laughs> it is the most horrible thing I've probably ever produced. Yet now it's been seen 413,000 times because of a single link. Before he linked to that video, it was seen less than 400. That one link, all of a sudden I had an audience on this video. 
And I'm proud to say three and a half stars. Right? Not bad. Okay. And here's another example. So this is a video. When I was uh, seventh grade computer class, I was teaching. We were doing the history of computers. And uh, students had to make a digital story. And they could do it on a person, a product, or a company that, de that dealt with computers. And they had to tell the history of that person, company, or product. So this student, who was Korean, had a hard time speaking English. A seventh grader does the history of computers, but he actually, this video actually looks at the history of Microsoft. And so he starts doing the history of Microsoft. And because he was an ESL student or EAL or whatever you call him, the great power of this was he could record his voice over and over and over and over again until he got the pronunciation exactly the way he wanted it on every word. Talk about powerful learning, right? He would listen to himself, that didn't like the way he did it, delete, do it again. Oh, like that. Well, this has been viewed over 5,000 times. And we come into class one day and the kids were checking their videos and all of a sudden this kid has like 3,000 views overnight. And all the rest of the kids in the class, little quiet kid in the back, Korean kid in the back class, never spoken. The kids were like, why does he get all the views? So we started looking at it and it was because the day before Microsoft released Vista. And everybody was on YouTube looking for Vista videos and Microsoft videos. And this kid's history of Microsoft jumps towards the top. And all of a sudden the little Korean kid in the back of the class yeah, that's me, you know, right? Four-star video for a kid that can hardly speak English. That's not bad. That's where the audience is. And kids understand audience better than any of us ever will. That's where the audience is when it comes to video. That's why that's better than TeacherTube. That's why that is better than edublogs.tv because this is where the audience is. If you want an audience for your kids, you have to post it here, okay? All right, so let's look at what a school looks like. Once your school has moved from a consumer to a producer kind of atmosphere. And I'm going to show you examples from the two schools that I've worked at in the last couple of years. One is Shanghai American School in Shanghai, China, an independent international school. And the other one is the school I work at now, International School of Bangkok. So this is kind of our plan at the International School of Bangkok. We're trying to get one single log on. We have a Moodle install at our school, which is our walled garden. Nobody's allowed in it. I'll show you an example of that. Excuse me. We have WordPress MU, which is our blogs. So we have two, actually. We have teachers have their own blogs. That's their communication out to parents, which I talked about yesterday in one of my talks. And we also have an installation for students that students, each one of our students has a blog that is open to the world that they are receiving feedback on and learning on their own. We also have an ELG install, which if this is like Facebook, only it's our own installation of Facebook. Uh, on our school server, so kids have, they can become friends, it's got an inbox, they can create groups, there's a little, I'll show it to you, but it's quite a cool little program. And our, then we were going to somehow try to get a wiki on our school system that we could use. We thought we were going to use the one that comes with an Apple uh, OS X server, but we found out it wasn't as good, so we still haven't implemented that part of it yet, so I can't really show you that part of it, okay? All right, so let me show you this. <clears throat> Uh, where to start? Let's see. There was Wikibooks. All right, let's see if this loads. So this is SAS China. There's a link on the there's a link on the wiki for this. Hopefully this will load. So Shanghai American School came up with this e-learning portal. Wah! Come on, sucker. China might have the connection to China. Not so good. Give it a second. Yeah. Thanks. <laughs> yeah. We're going to Shanghai, China. Just give it a second. Jeez Louise, you just give it a second. 
Still loading. Oh, there it goes. See? Just have to give it a second. All right, so this is what they have. And what this is, is kind of to begin with, this is kind of like a NetVibes or an iGoogle page. So every kid can come up here and they can sign in and they can totally make this their own RSS reader. The school has totally, everything's RSS to the school. Like every teacher does RSS. Once a month they hold an RSS teaching session to parents because parents need to know how to get RSS so they can get their student blog, the teacher blogs, they can get the calendar, they can do everything. So we're teaching our parent community how to do RSS. The school has two campuses. So here's the Pudong campus. The high school announcements come on a wiki, so they, they or sorry, on a blog. So the secretary just puts the announcements on a blog. We grab that RSS feed. The kids get it right here. Here's the elementary school. You know, you can see what's going on in the elementary school. Parents can come here. They can see all this. You know, uh, finals. This is, of course, from last year. Not a lot going on. Uh, here's the calendar system for the school. Kids can log into Moodle right here. Here's the student blogs. Every kid has a blog. They can get to their blog right here. Here's all the staff blogs. I'll show you some examples of this later. Here's their file storage system. They, what they've done is they're taking their same servers. They, they used to have internal file servers, like we all did. You'd move files around internally. And what they did is they turned all of those into web servers and made everything accessible on the web. Okay? Password protected for files, tests, those kind of things. And I'll, I'll show you an example of that. Okay, Flickr is blocked in China, so they just installed their own open source gallery. And this runs just like Flickr. Kids can upload pictures, teachers can upload pictures. Once the pictures are on the web, it looks just like Flickr. You can rate it, you can comment. And then once they're on the web, you can link them into your blog, put them on a wiki, do whatever you want with the pictures. YouTube is a blocked a lot of times, even though we still find ways to put videos up. Um, but they basically installed their own YouTube. So here you can see they just put in a new IP phone system and they've been making videos to teach the teachers how to use the new IP phone system. Right? Um, and then they have an atomic, atomic learning subscription. So this is a blog from a student and we came up with a naming system while I was there. Um, so this is the student's first name. O1 means it's the first Louise in that class. PD means Pudong. PX meant Pushy. That was the different campuses. And 2014 is their graduation year. I'll tell that to you because you're educators, but the rest of the world probably would have a hard time figuring that out except for the graduation date. Okay? And what we did is in the middle school, they've actually used categories and they make this their online portfolio. So we can actually go to band and we can see a reflection of this student's band practice. We can click on the MP3 file of the concert C scale that this student made and listen to that MP3 file. Here's their band reflection for fall conference. And we do student-led conferences, so the students come in and they sit down with the sit down, or the parents come in, sit down with their child at a computer, and their child walks them through this. But the real power is, is the parents get to see it all before they ever come in. And so the dialogue really is about the students learning. I talked to a teacher from the school last year. He says, "Yeah, this is getting out of control. So I'm having to kick kick parents out." And they sit there and talk forever. Don't they understand? We only have 20 minutes. Like, the, I mean, that's where we're at. We also, they also have parents complaining. There's too much information. The deputy superintendent goes, I've never heard that. <laughs> you know, parents are saying, whoa, I know I got the kids blog, the teacher's blog. And he's like, well, you know, you've got to work through it. You'll figure out how to, how to do it now. But that's kind of, a cool, kind of a cool thing. Here's the one we're doing at ISB. I can click on elementary school, and you can see the elementary school, middle school, and high school has their little blogs. Here was our one right before summer. Summer reading information. You can download the summer reading log that our library was doing. The computer's kind of... Download it there. Here's the school calendar. We use Google calendars because you can embed and pull and push them anywhere. So the school has gone completely to Google calendars. And parents can click on the button and get that on Google. 
Uh, here is the, if this will let me log in. Uh, this is ELG, so this is our social networking site. Uh oh. Now I know they're in the process of updating all these because students come to school on the 6th. There it is. Okay, so you can see here's what the front page looks like. It looks a lot like, like uh, thank you. It looks a lot like Facebook. Um, to me, the really powerful thing and the, what teachers are finding very powerful are the groups. So what I've done is I've come in and I go to groups. You can see different groups that have been made. And we made a group for our middle school. This integrated technology is our middle school. This is kind of cool. So we go integrated technology. This is a group. It's actually a class, a seventh grade class. And down here on the side, great math websites for middle school. So one of the math teachers came to the tech department and said, hey, could you find me some great math websites I can use? So the guy that does my job, the middle school technology guy, said, sure, I can find you some. So he goes to class the next day and tells the kids, um, can you go out and find some cool math sites that you'd like to play? And look at what the kids did. This site focuses on problem solving strategies. It gives an example of everyday problem solving skills. Click math stories. <laughs> Love it. Uh, so much fun. Anyway, um, the other one you'll find here is one that I set up. We have so many kids that have iPhones and uh, iPod touches at school that we actually have a support group in here. Anybody that has one can join this group and we're talking about strategies and how to use it. This cool new app came out. So it's teachers and kids in the same area talking and learning and, and doing all of that cool stuff. Please somebody tell me when I'm out of time or just walk out of the room. Um, pretty cool, huh? How's the chat doing? Anybody in the back room chat? Oh, a few people. Okay. Right. There are ways to do this. Uh, I don't have iTunes, but we're actually creating podcasts with fifth graders. You know, and we're, we're in such a culture at our schools now. We're in such a culture at our schools that our teachers are to a point where if they can't find it on the web, they're having kids create it on the web. So our teachers are going out there and saying, you know, I'd really like to find a resource on X. The resource doesn't uh, isn't out there, they can't find it. So then they say, well, then we're going to create it. You know, Reading Strategies for Fifth Graders is our podcast. It's called Students Teaching Students, where students are learning about reading strategies and then creating podcasts for other kids on how to use those reading strategies when you're reading because the teachers couldn't find a podcast that was doing that. So they said, we'll create it. Thank you. I hope this was a good end to your conference. Have safe travels home, and remember, don't complain too much if your plane's late. <laughs>